Jonah chapter 2 is where we pick up. We're going to rejoin the runaway prophet this morning as he uh, sits in the belly of the great fish. Um, You know, it's not very often that you get to share a prayer from someone who's sitting in the stomach of a fish. And so this is one of those stories that's unique in scripture and so impactful and so awesome to see. And I think that um, I really couldn't word it any better than F.B. Meyer. He said this about the text we're going to read this morning, Jonah chapter 2. F.B. Meyer said, The psalm which follows in chapter 2 is very helpful to those who have brought themselves into the depths by their wrongdoing. In other words, this is a psalm or a prayer that's being written in a way that is recognizing someone who's in the circumstances and they got themselves there. They got themselves into this situation. I imagine Jonah really would have dug the classic song, Nobody's Fault But Mine, um, and not the Led Zeppelin version, um, the actual 1927 Blind Willie Johnson version. And here's why. Because <laughs> my, my family's looking at me very straight. Uh, just follow me on this, okay? Nobody's Fault But Mine, 1927. This is what Billy, or Blind Willie, not Billy, Blind Willie Johnson wrote. He wrote, I have a Bible in my arm. If I don't read, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. I would add this too. It's an old gospel song, and I'll add this to it. If I don't read and obey. If I don't read the word of God, and if I don't obey it, it's nobody's fault but mine. If I know what God's call is, if I know what God's expectations of me are, and I don't obey them, I have no one to blame but myself. The Bible is the word of God. And so we recognize that when we read the Bible, this is God's instruction. This is what we should be following. And the word of God had come to Jonah and he had run the other way. The word of God had come to Jonah very clearly, very concisely. I want you, Jonah, to get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah got down, not dancing. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the boat. He went down to the bottom of the boat. Now he's at the bottom of the sea. Now he's at the very bottom of the sea. And he's praying this prayer to God from a place of despair. But this is very interesting to me as, as, we, as we approach this chapter. By all accounts, if this book had ended in chapter 1, Jonah, we would assume Jonah would be done for. If the book ended at the, at the end of chapter 1 and there was no more to this, we would assume, I think quite naturally, that Jonah died. That Jonah was dead, he got eaten by a creature of the sea. Not many stories that begin that way have happy endings. And so Jonah's at the bottom of the sea and this fish, we would think he was fish food. And he kind of was like, he kind of was fish food for three days, you know? And so we think about Jonah's story. This would be a story of despair if it ended with chapter one, but chapter two, listen to me. Chapter two is a reminder for those who have run before, just like Jonah did, or even for those who are running currently. It's a wake-up call for those who are currently running from God, going the opposite direction. It's a reminder for those of of us who have run in the past, and it's a wake-up call for those of us who are running right now. And especially for those who think that their story's over. This is a wake-up call for those who think their story's over. They've run from God. They've sinned too much. There's no hope for them. They've messed their lives up beyond repair. Please hear me. It's not beyond repair. Jonah was swallowed by a big fish in the Mediterranean Sea. And there was still hope for him. If there's hope for Jonah in this situation, there's hope for you. 
If you can hear me, you're not beyond saving. God can reach you right now. And for those of us who know people that are lost, that is so encouraging. And for those of us who may be running right now, that should be awakening. Turn. The next stanza of this story is going to reveal this to us, that we are not without hope, even in the depths of despair, even in the depths of the sea. If there is breath in our lungs, there is hope for us because we have a God who can not only work miracles, but we serve a God who brings people back to life. And so Jonah chapter two, let's look at this. God is God everywhere, including in the pit where Jonah is. Let's look at this. Jonah two, one says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. It helps to have a really basic understanding of what we're talking about when we see the word Sheol used in the Old Testament. This gives us perspective as to what Jonah is saying. As he cries out, and notice this, before we get into a Sheol explanation, just really quickly, notice Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. God had not ceased to be his God just because Jonah had failed horribly. He was still the God of Jonah, even in his failure. But he cries out from the belly of the fish and he says, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. While Sheol and hell share similarities. I think a lot of times we get these terms mixed up because of their usage in Old Testament and New Testament literature. Um, our understanding of hell from the New Testament is far clearer and far clearer of a concept than that of Sheol in the Old Testament. Hell in the New Testament is almost always used uh, to name a place of punishment for those who have refused God's mercy in Christ. So we understand that, generally speaking, that's, that's pretty solid. But Sheol, on the other hand, often refers to a place, but it's simply part of expressions as well that sometimes refer to death and not a place of the dead. So sometimes it's speaking of a place um, that that doesn't necessarily, like, is the holding place of the dead. It can mean that. But it also can mean like referring to death itself or being in a really low state. And so there's some interpretation that needs to happen based on the context. The righteous and unrighteous in the Old Testament go down to Sheol in a sense that they all die. But it's a mistake to view Sheol as an intermediate state in, in the sense that purgatory in Roman Catholic teaching is characterized as an intermediate state. This is not an intermediate state. It's not a holding place where you can work off, you know, sins that you committed. It doesn't work like that. That's not a biblical concept. The overall picture of Sheol in the Old Testament is grim. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of hitting a low state. But what's interesting about it is, is the Old Testament affirms over and over again that God is there. This is what makes Sheol unique. It's a place where God is. If you can read about this in Psalm 139, 8, in Proverbs 15, 11, in Job 26, 6, in Amos 9.2, if you miss them, it's okay. You can scrub back after this is all done and find this mark. Look at the time marking on your screen. You can go back and get those references. But you guys, that helps us with clarity as to what Jonah's talking about here. Some have really struggled whether Jonah physically died or not. And, and it, it could be, but I, I don't lean that direction. I think what Jonah's talking about here is hitting the bottom. Jonah has reached the bottom, the lowest point of his existence. Yet, notice this. In that place, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. It fits with our understanding of Sheol, the pit, from Old Testament literature. 
that God hears us from there and can rescue us from there. I cried out from deep inside Sheol, you heard my voice. What this gives, as you kind of develop the idea in your mind, this gives us a metaphor of the belly of this fish being like a tomb. It's like a tomb that he's inside of, but there's still hope for him. What's interesting about this is the one person we should think of when we read about this part of Jonah's story, him being in the belly of the fish, is Jesus. Because Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41, let me read this to you. It gives us a perspective, but it really gives us a a greater um, understanding, not only of Jonah's situation, but what Jesus was actually talking about as he taught um, the Pharisees at this time. And so Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days, three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. That's that huge epiphany that we reach when we see Jesus talking, something greater than Jonah is here. You understand that when we read Old Testament historical narrative, prophecy, poetry, whatever it is that we're reading, maybe even the law, all of it is pointing to something greater, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the greater of the story. He will always be the greater of the situation. And so whenever we read these things, you know, I love it when Spurgeon said this. He said, whatever text I'm teaching, I take the text and I make a beeline for the cross. And the reason he said that is because we want to look to Jesus as the greater. He is always the greater. He's always the answer to our situation. And so when we read and we study and we learn and we mature and we grow, we understand the only way that we're, we're spiritually going to be able to do that is by looking to Christ, by allowing him to work in us and, and looking to be more like him, being molded into his image, as Paul would write. So as Jesus was in the tomb for three days, God did not abandon him there. This is the idea. God did not abandon Christ in the tomb. He rose again on the third day. So too Jonah in the tomb of the great fish was not abandoned by God. And so he's a picture. He's a type that points towards Christ as Christ being the greater. But he's a type of that. You and I, when we think that we cannot sink any lower mentally, emotionally, physically, we are not abandoned by God. We are not abandoned by God in that place. And it's important for us to recognize that he is ready to answer our call for salvation. He's ready to answer our call for salvation right there at the lowest of our low. I don't know how you guys are doing. I haven't been able to talk to everybody that's in my sphere because of separation. We've tried. I've been lots of phone calls, text messages, trying to keep up with people. But maybe some of you guys didn't want to tell me. Or maybe we just haven't been able to have a conversation and you are lower than you've ever been or getting close. You are not abandoned by God here. Not in that place. God has not abandoned you. And the reminders in Jonah's story, the reminders in Jesus' story, it all points to God has not abandoned you. If you have breath in your lungs, there is hope for you. This is a call to salvation. And in fact, if please hear me, It's a biblical principle that we are foolish to not call on him when we're in that place. 
Don't think for a second it's ridiculous for you to call upon God because you're in such a terrible place. You're foolish for not doing it. Over and over again, scripture points to this teaching, to this idea that if you are in a place, the right thing to do, if you're in a spot that you can't get out of, if you are struggling with sin, if you are bound by this, the wrong thing to do is try and figure it out on your own. You are a fool for not crying out to God. And we don't want to be that way. And I'm not saying that like, you know, like, I haven't, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be a fool. Cry out to the Lord. He's right there. He's right there. When we cry out to God, we should never hesitate to recognize the situation that we're in. Step one, when you're in a bad spot, when you are stuck in or entrapped or entrenched in a sin, cry out to God. Step number two, when you cry out to God, don't play games. Don't play games with Tell him what's going on. Talk to him. Be real with him. Don't try and, 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 you know, make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. Say what it is. Don't pretend like it's not happening. Don't pretend like you just need a little bit of help. You need saving. You are dead in trespasses and sin without Christ. You need him desperately. And so Jonah says what it is. He calls it out. Look at verse three. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Notice that Jonah fully recognizes that the sailors did not throw him into the sea. I mean, they may have physically been the hands that, that threw him in there, but what happened was because of God. God brought this all to pass. God sometimes will use people to get his work done in that way. He'll use people to get his means done. And what we do is we recognize this is what the Lord is doing. You know, there's been times where people will be um, saying things to me or, or acting on, on you know, uh, just something that they've seen, having a conversation or, or doing something. And I'll recognize God is working through this person right now. Absolutely. We need to recognize that God is the, the hand behind this a lot of times. And so Jonah recognizes that. And I'm not saying that's in all scenarios. We need to be discerning about this. But when we look at our situation, a lot of times we can see God working through other people to wake us up, to help us see what we're really doing. And so he says this, you threw me into the depths. He says this to God. Who threw me into the depths? Well, the sailors did, but it was God. And I think we understand what that looks like. The peril that he finds himself in was the Lord's doing. All your breakers, your billows swept over me. Think about this. He puts God in the place of the water as the water is washing over him and crashing on top of him. He's saying that was God. That was God doing this. But notice this, Jonah's greatest punishment, even as he sinks to the depths of the sea and in this text describes what it sounds like to drown. Seaweed wrapping around his head, sinking down to the bottom. His greatest punishment is separation from God. It's separation from God. Even in that banishment, though, Jonah recognizes, I've been banished from your presence. And the most beautiful word used here, and you can look at it with me, it's right here in verse 4. I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I've been banished from your sight, but there's still hope. 
there's still hope if he looks to God in this place. Again, we're just adding layers here, you guys. We're just adding layers to how much God loves us, to how much grace and forgiveness he gives us. Stop thinking that you have overtapped God's forgiveness. You haven't. Return to him. Return to him and repent. As he remembers the Lord, in that word usage, yet I will look towards your holy temple. What's interesting about this is I physically thought about this. You're in the Mediterranean Sea. You're sinking to the bottom. You get swallowed by the fish. Bum deal. Probably smells terrible in there. Um, I mean, if a tauntaun's bad, this is worse. Um, and so <laughs> that's a select joke. I'm sorry. But, but here's the thing. It, it's got to be a terrible situation to be in. And as he looks back towards God, he says, I will look again towards your holy temple. Where's the holy temple? It's in Jerusalem. So the direction he would be looking as he says this, and I know that he's speaking spiritually, but think about the physical picture as well. I will look towards your holy temple. He's looking back towards Jerusalem. What's interesting about this picture, this is a man who is going the wrong direction, sailing for Tarshish when he should have been trekking to Nineveh, going in the exact opposite direction of where God had called him, sinking, swallowed in the sea, and as he looks towards the temple, he has to turn his worship, his, he has to turn back towards God for this to be right. He recognizes that. That's the first step of repentance, is making things right with God. But it's not the only step. It's not the only step. It's the first step. And the reason I say that is this. If you think about him looking back towards Jerusalem, in that direction, and, and we'll just ballpark it, probably northeast from here, you know, probably more east than north, but northeast, if you will. What also lies northeast from there? Nineveh. The place he was called to begin with. If you think about this picture, our obedience to God is not only making things right with him. It's continuing on and walking that obedience out. It's not just us turning back and saying, Lord, I messed up. It's us repenting to God, making things right with him and continuing on in the path that he set us out on. It's like a straight shot. It begins with the Lord. It continues and is proven by what we do. Obedience will be the proof of his repentance. Obedience will be the proof of it. Now, there's an extra layer to this. This whole sermon's like a big onion. You know, it's like an ogre. Like, it's just, it's just one layer after another. What's crazy about this is not only his physical repentance matters, but his repentance of heart. It's not about him just obeying what God told him to do, but Jonah needs to do it with the right heart. And for those of you that know this story, that's where this gets really dicey in the second half of the book. Was, was Jonah's heart in the right place? The task right now is he says, yet I will look to your holy temple. The task that God had given him lies beyond there. And I want to remind you this. We talk about this a lot. When we talk about faith, the evidence of our faith is what we do. Faith without works is dead is what James says. And he goes on in James 2.26 and he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Just as your body without the spirit dies. He says your faith without works is dead. It's useless. All of James chapter 2 just over and over and over again. You have to live what you believe for it to be real. You have to live it out. You have to do what you say. We can't just be people who talk really well. We have to be people who live well. 
who do what God says and obey, obey him with our physical lives. So it's not just about Jonah looking back to the temple. Jonah, in order, in order to fulfill this, all the things that he's saying that sound really good, he has to go and complete this task. That's the next step of repentance. Not only getting right with God, getting back on mission. He says this, then you raised my life from the pit, Lord, my God. He says, God, you brought me back from this. While there's some debate as to whether Jonah truly repents in his heart or not, this is what's crazy about this for me. There is some debate. Some commentators will say Jonah repented here. Others say, if you want my opinion, this is Mike's opinion. I think the text supports it. He did not repent in his heart. That's what I think. You can study the text. You can, and that's okay. We can disagree on that. We're cool. We're cool. But the point of it is this, whether he truly repented in his heart or not, notice here, God still responds. I think that's a powerful statement. God still responds. We don't see any true statement of repentance on Jonah's part, although he says, I will look to your temple. God raised me. He does have that direction looking towards the Lord. He doesn't make a statement of regret or repentance for what he's done in this prayer. But regardless of that, God still responds. He hears his prayer. Verse 7, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. And God hears him. God raises him from the pit. God responds. Jonah uses a different word. If you're looking at verses 6 and 7 right now, this is worth noting. In verses 6 and 7, Jonah uses a different word for life. In verse 6, the word he uses for life is she. Now, but in verse 7, he says the word life again. The word for that in the Hebrew is nefesh. And when he's talking about God raising his life in verse 6, think physical. He's talking about a physical raising. God physically saved him. What's interesting is the difference of word usage in verse 7. When he says his life is fading away in verse 7, it means that Jonah was losing hope. His life fading away means like he's, he's, he's giving up. You ever feel that? You know, we understand what it means to be physically saved from something. You know, Mack trucks coming at us 55 miles an hour, someone knocks you out of the way, you've physically been saved. You ever felt like your life was fading away? You ever felt like um, you were just giving up on everything? You ever been in that mental, emotional state where you're just, or even spiritually fatigued where you're just giving up? This is what Jonah's talking about here in verse 7. As my life was fading away, he's saying, as my hope was fading. As my desire and all that was just giving up. As I was in a place of giving up. Not that the physical doesn't happen. But I think that this is what we see more often in, in, in the church. We start giving up when things get difficult. We start losing our hope. When the outcome of our life isn't going to be what we thought it was going to be. When our job or our, our college situation or our ministry situation, whatever it is, our family situation. My kids aren't as cool as I thought they'd be. I'm not saying anything about you guys. But, but like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, when all of these expectations that we have start not to live up to it and life gets really hard and you're like, I may not be in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea, but I'm dang close. Look at verse 7. As my life, or we could say, as my hope was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. 
When things are not as you wish they would be, remember the Lord. Look to the Lord. Cry out to him, just like Jonah did. He did that right. That's the right thing to do. Because we need God's strength for those moments to show us that there is hope, that there is a purpose, that God is still working. He's never going to stop. He's going to keep doing what he's doing until he completes. And we need to be in this for the long haul. Don't grow disheartened. Don't grow weary of doing good. Galatians 6, 9. In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. If you give up, what's going to happen? No reaping. I love it that Paul says it that way because it's so clear. In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing the right thing. Don't get tired of pressing in and feeling like your wheels are just spinning and spinning and spinning. It's your task to keep going. Let the results be God's. Let him handle that. And what's interesting about this is when we trust ourselves to the Lord, we recognize that he has a power that's beyond our own. When we entrust ourselves to anything else, we find out that there is a limited quantity and very little quantity of help available to us. Look at verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a beautiful psalm. Beautiful prayer. The sailors have been saved from their pagan beliefs. We saw that back in chapter one. An amazing picture. Sailors are saved. I fully believe that. Um, We know if we cheat and we read ahead, the Ninevites are going to be saved as well. They're going to repent and God's going to spare them. But what's interesting about this, those are the Gentile groups that are saved in this prophecy. Who are the people at this time that are extremely idolatrous and fallen and broken? God's own people. Jonah was a prophet during a very evil time and the northern kingdom of Israel is going to fall very soon after this. It's not going to take long for the northern kingdom of Israel to fall because of their idolatry. The nation of Israel, who Jonah has prophesied to, this message is for them. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Think about the physical witness that God is working through Jonah's life for his own people at this very moment. Think about this. 2 Kings 17.15 tells us not long after the story of Jonah, not long after Jonah's uh, prophetic ministry ended, they rejected, speaking of the northern nation of, of Israel, they rejected his statutes, God's, and his covenant he had made with their ancestors and the warning he had given them. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. Now notice what Jonah says again. Those who cherish what? Worthless idols abandon their faithful love. We could easily just synchronize that with 2 Kings 17. The worthless idol worshipers, or the idol worshipers become as worthless as their idols are. And many of you have heard me talk about this over and again. The the biblical theology of idolatry is consistent all throughout in Isaiah and in Psalms that we become what we worship. We turn into the thing that we worship. And don't think about singing songs to it. I think that we, we, we misassociate a lot of times. 
if I'm to make up my own words. I don't know if that's official, but it's a micism. I think we misassociate sometimes singing songs to something as being worshiped to it. But if you give your time to something, if you value something more than you value something else, you realize that if you serve something by um, putting effort into it more than God, anything that takes more of your priority than God himself, that is idolatry. And therefore, that theology that the Old Testament teaches applies. We don't want to be those who follow worthless idols because we will become like them. It's that way throughout history. The history of mankind speaks of it. People become what they worship. They don't hear as well. They don't speak as well. Their hearts grow cold. You see, we were designed and created to worship a living God, not an inanimate object. Not cash. Not another created being that doesn't have the power to save. We were created to worship the God who saves. Jonah is able to challenge their idolatry before that happened, before their destruction happened, through his circumstances, in his current struggle, even though he's failed. Even though he's here because of failure, because he ran away. He created these circumstances. Even in this place, he's ministering to the people. And I want to encourage you, you don't have to wait to be healed from your brokenness. If you repent, you can minister to people. And I'm not saying you should be in a position of ministry. There's, there's things about how we should have a process for that. And that no one who's a novice should be promoted into teaching people those types of things. I don't think I'm throwing out you know, Paul's teachings with this. I'm actually putting all these things together. The point of it is this. If we are humble and accept what God is doing in our lives, he will use that to witness to other people. And a lot of times we aren't showing that. We aren't showing our brokenness because it makes us look weak. We aren't showing the fact that we struggle with sin because other people will know that we struggled with sin. Well, you know what? If I have a struggle and I'm broken, I'm going to tell you about it because you are going to be able to see God's grace in the midst of that in ways that I, you would never see it anywhere else. We need to show each other our weaknesses, not for pity, for encouragement in Christ. That's the point of it. Even when Jonah had failed, he still has the ability to be a witness and to point to the Lord and reveal that salvation belongs to God and God alone. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's testifying. God is the answer. And even in our failure, God still wants to use us here in our culture, here in our communities, even when we fail. And that doesn't give us excuse. You guys know this. It doesn't have an excuse to go on, just do whatever you want. God's going to use it. Read Romans 6. It's all about But here's the point. When we do fail, God can even use that failure. That's how powerful he is. God uses our failures to bring glory to his name. And I'll say this. Our repentance is one of the greatest testimonies we can ever give. Looking at people and telling them, I repented from what I did and God saved me is the greatest testimony you can ever give. It doesn't have to include crack addiction. It doesn't have to include alcoholism. It can have those aspects in it that God freed you from or that God is delivering you progressively through. But it doesn't have to have that. The greatest testimony is that Jesus saved me from my sin and he can save you too. And that is a fact. It's an absolute fact. We should always have this awareness about ourselves 
that God can use even the worst circumstances to glorify his name when a heart is submitted to him. And it always gives us the opportunity, and we are given the opportunity on a continual basis every day to offer that sacrifice that Jonah describes here. Did you see it? Look at the text with me. He says this after he speaks about the idols in verse 8, verse 9. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's his sacrifice? What's the sacrifice he can give God? Thanksgiving. His sacrifice is thanksgiving. Praising God. Thanking him. That sacrifice, that offering of thanksgiving should be on our lips always. We need to be giving thanks to God continually, even during pandemic, even during difficulty, even during, hey, we don't have a place to gather right now physically. It's not a bad season because we've been online, so God knew. But, but here's the thing, like, we can still be thankful for, for what God's doing. True thankfulness comes from a recognition that God has saved us from our sin. That's all we need. Everything else, gravy. Everything else that he's doing, he's just using us for his glory. In the best way possible. If Jonah can give thanks in the belly of a fish, we can give thanks right here in our jammies watching online service. There's no reason not to. You can thank the Lord right now. And feel free in your living rooms right now to go, thank you, Lord. You should. You should. I'm going to get a little Pentecostal. Not, not a lot, but a little bit. Thank you, Lord. Do it, family. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, wow. So synchronized. <laughs> but it's still, we need to be giving thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's getting into it. <laughs> Spirit's moving in here. All right. So let's wrap this up. Let's look at verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And now this is like your favorite verse for the kids to read when they're in Sunday school. You know, it's one of those verses like, ha, ah, he said puke. You know, like it's like their favorite thing in the world. Um, the fish deposited Jonah somewhere on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean and it's back to business. God heard his prayer, and God had the fish make a little, you know, gooey deposit right there on the shores. Now think about this. God doesn't deliver us so that we can continue on the path of rebellion. It would be a very shocking turn of events if Jonah had had this prayer in the belly of the fish, been spewed out on the shores, got on a boat, and tried to go to Tarshish again. That would be weird. That would be really weird. God doesn't deliver us so that we can go back to what we were doing before, so that we can run again. He delivers us, so we start off on the right course. And so for anyone who's struggling right now, and you're like, the Lord delivered me from this. I felt like I had this, this time where I was submitted to God, and, and I was free of the, the sin that I struggle with, and now I'm going back to it again. Remember, God did not deliver you to go backwards. He delivered you to go forwards. Start going forwards. Start going forward. God wants us to get back to the task he gave us. He places us on firm ground to continue the mission, not to go backwards again. That would be ridiculous. It would be shocking if we read that in the story. It It should shock us when we look at our lives and we're going back to things that we did before. Go forward. That's why God delivered you. Sometimes, like in Jonah's case, we are projectiled in the correct direction. But there's some consequences to that. The question is this. What is the status of our hearts 
when God sets us straight? The question that bounces around my head a lot. What's the status of our heart when God puts us on the right path again? Am I submitted in heart to him or merely am I physically going in the right direction? Are we willing participants in his calling or are we begrudgingly walking the path? If it's the latter, eventually the status of the heart will reveal itself physically. Eventually, if we are only begrudgingly walking the path, meaning that my heart's not in it, but I know I'm going the direction God wants me to, let me just, and some of you know this really well, because we've all struggled with this to some extent, but the heart will win. Your heart that's unsubmitted to God will win against your physical movement eventually. It's only a matter of time. Because when you win the mind, you don't get the heart, but when you win the heart, you get the mind. I don't know if you know that, but we're wired that way. And when you think about this, as hard as we attempt to conceal the heart that's unrepentant by actions, like, well, I'm going the right direction, but we're trying to conceal the heart within, it leaks. It's made to leak so that the truth comes out so it can be dealt with. Jonah's story is going to continue in chapter 3. But for us, God has revealed this to us this morning. And this is really important. It doesn't matter if you've run before. It doesn't matter if you're running right now. God can save you, but he wants all of you. He wants all of you. God wants your heart. God wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants all of you to be moving in the right direction. It doesn't matter if you've run before. It doesn't matter if you're running now. God can save you from your circumstances. I think a lot of times we think that that means he's going to remove us from the situations we're in. God can save us, but there is still going to be a mission. We're still going to have to walk out this thing, and it's not going to be easy. God didn't save Jonah, spit him out, and as he's flying through the air out of the fish, all the vomit sprays off of him. He lands on a beach chair with a pina colada and a shade tree. I mean, I don't see that in the text. I'm kicking my feet up, but you can't see him. Jonah, and I've heard some compelling arguments about this, was probably very scarred from his situation in the belly of the fish. Maybe looked pretty scary if the physical toll of being in the belly of the fish had happened to him. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into the fire, they walk around, nothing's happening to them. Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Um, it, it doesn't really say that he escaped all harm. If you're in the stomach of an animal, there's acid there. Think about it. So it's very likely that Jonah wasn't a pretty picture. Jonah might have looked like a hot mess. And what's funny about this is a lot of times we expect God to deliver us onto a beach somewhere with a shade tree. Oh, look at that. Jonah's on the beach. Yeah, so he can get up probably in a very hindered state and march straight into Nineveh. The place he should have gone in the first place. God will empower us to do these things. But here's the thing. Our hearts need to be prepared to submit to God in that. Or we're going to experience some struggles along the way. Jonah's story isn't over. Just as if we'd ended Jonah chapter 1 and been like, oh, Jonah's dead. He got eaten. Here in this would be like, oh, Jonah's alive. Yay. don't Don't start cheering or booing yet. It's not over. And there's a lot to go over here still in chapters 3 and 4. My point is this. 
We have to recognize God's plan and submit to it in heart. Jesus laid his life down to take the punishment of our sin, both past and the current. And God did this through Christ so that we could keep going, so that we could get back on the path and accomplish what he put us here to do. Cry out to him from your current situation. Thank him for saving you from the past. Look to the Lord in all of these things. Submit your heart to him. You are not too far gone. God can reach you right now. But I encourage you, this is not just a physical change. Physical change will happen. Submit your heart to him. Look to the Lord first, and then let him start directing your path. And as he does that, submit daily, step by step to what he's doing. It's important that we do. And it's important for the kingdom. This is our calling. This is our mission. And so look for opportunities, you guys. Look for opportunities that God wants to use you in in this coming week. Don't be so hasty. Don't be hasty. Don't be so hasty to want to move past the situation you're in currently. Submit yourself to God inside of it and let him direct your steps here. It may not be easy, but let God decide where it leads. And be thankful all through that process. This is going to take the Holy Spirit. This is going to take a work of God in our hearts. Let's ask him to do it together. Let's pray. Lord, as we recognize that we don't naturally um, submit very well or very easily. God, we just thank you that you know all things. Thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts. God, I thank you that... Um, that you show us grace even when we are so resistant to you. And Lord, we are so undeserving. But God, we are so thankful. And Lord, we give you this time. Do a work in people's hearts. Just create in us these humble and meek ways, Jesus, that reflect you. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for saving us.